Hey guys, this is Nadine. At the end of the episode, you'll hear me tell you to visit us on our private Facebook group, She's Not a Slut Yet. Well, that's no longer the name because I changed it and I added an Instagram. The new Facebook group name is Snazzy Podcast, which is spelled S-N-A-S-Y Podcast. And the Instagram page is the exact same thing. That's all the updates for now. I hope you all enjoy the episode and revisit us next week for our first movie. This is Dan. <laughs> this is John. And this is She's Not a Slut Yet. This is a podcast about three friends watching cult movies and drinking together. And guess what, guys? We're recording in April, but technically speaking, when this is released, it's John's birthday month. What? What? John, how old Happy are you? Happy birthday, John. Oh, currently I'm 24. Um, I will be 25. And the only reason why I'm excited for it, besides the fact that I'm one closer to dying, is that my insurance is going to be cheaper. Bleak. <laughs> Perfect mood to set for this movie, man. Let's go. All right. Well, this week we'll be reviewing John's pick, Requiem for a Dream, which was released in 2000. So, Dan, let's start us off with some box office stats. All right. So, box office, this has a $4.5 million budget in the year 2000. So, small small potatoes. Only made $3.6 million back. Small potatoes. <laughs> Domestically, <laughs> um, internationally, it, it made uh, 3.7. So... I guess kind of doubled its money, but the big thing here is it won some pretty significant awards here. Here we well, have... Before uh-huh. we go into that, just just say how many awards that won and how many nominations, because it's insane. I think it's one of the only movies that we've seen so far with this many awards. So it's won 36 awards and had 70 nominations. So again, it's critically acclaimed. Insane. Um, there's a whole bunch of different acronyms for all the different awards. I'm not going to go through all of them just because it's it's basically a critic's dream movie. Like As far as Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 79%, IMDb 8.3%. The big thing is the audience score is a 93%. So this is this is a very well-liked movie. Yep. Um, I do want to mention something in there um, just because it is kind of amazing. Um, Dan... I know you kind of skipped over it, but there's two in there. First off, um, Darren Aronofsky won an ACA award for the best director, a Golden Spike, and a Golden Train award for this movie. That is insane. We want to talk about a decoration. Those three awards are pretty insane. Then it also won the special recognition from the National Board of Review for Excellence in Filmmaking. Again, ridiculous so just just as dan said like this this movie is very good for what it is now go ahead nadine there's a lot of interesting facts on here yeah i tried to keep it short honestly i tried to minimize it so i had i had to cut out a lot but what we have and i left in i hope you guys enjoy learning so director aronofsky asked jared leto and marlon wayans to avoid sex and sugar for a period of 30 days in order to better understand an overwhelming craving. In preparation for filming, Leto spent time living on the streets of New York, surrounded by people who were in the same situation as his character. He also starved himself for months, which you can tell. He looks very skinny in the movie, and he lost 28 pounds to play his heroin-addicted character realistically. In addition to having a camera mounted to her for certain sequences, Ellen Burstein spent four hours every morning being fitted with prosthetics, wearing four different necks, both fat and emaciated, two different fat suits, a 40-pound and a 20-pound suit, and nine different wigs, which is fucking insane. When Ellen Burstein first read the script offered by Darren, she was horrified by it and rejected the role. Um, which obviously, makes she a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. The word heroin is actually never said by any of the characters in the film. It's just called by its street names at the time. You got the bacon. Yep, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of street names. And that's actually actually done on purpose, by the way, by uh, Darren Aronofsky. Yeah, I figured it was like a choice because I feel like they had to have said it in the book like several times. They didn't make it explicit for viewing purposes. 
So Darren initially wanted the three main heroin addicts featured in the film, Harry, Marin, and Tyrone, to be much younger than they were in Hubert Selby's Jr.'s novel and screenplay, but they decided against it because they felt using teenagers would be a little bit too much. Dave Chappelle was offered the role of Tyrone, but he turned it down. Hubert Selby Jr. wrote the novel in 1978 when medical facilities were inadequate and often abusive and uncaring to their patients. Ironically, the film was criticized for showing medical institutions in a bad light, and it did show them in a bad light. However, if you're basing it off the novel, I feel like it's pretty accurate showing because that is kind of how very accurate for how it was back then. Electric shock therapy because someone's doing drugs. Yeah, it's a little messed up. Yeah. Premier voted this film as one of the 25 most dangerous movies Faye Dunaway turned down the role of Sarah, and Marlon Wayans was initially hesitant to accept the role of Tyrone, thinking the role to be stereotypical on paper. Selby's first day on set was when they were shooting Sarah, getting the feeding tube pushed into her nose. The author lasted about 10 minutes before breaking into tears because of Ellen Burstein's performance, and apparently she did this often. She made a lot of people cry when she was acting, so... <laughs> um, um, I, I'm one, I have an entire spiel to go into about that once we get past the movie facts, but let's just end it with by saying she is an absolutely amazing actor. Oh, she's phenomenal at what she does, which is why you mm-hmm. couldn't replace her with anyone else in this movie. Darren also says the scene where Harry goes to visit Sarah was his favorite scene in Selby's novel. It was the scene that ultimately motivated him to make the film, and it is his favorite moment in the finished film. He feels this scene is representative of the whole story, how it's about the difficulty addicts find connecting with the people they love. Burstein is actually out of frame at one point at the end of the take used. Uh, Aronofsky was pissed when he noticed this during filming. He went to the cinematographer to see what had happened, and he had had tears streaming down his face from Burstein's performance to the point he had fogged up the lens and couldn't see to properly frame it. God, there's so much emotion with that. the last five, five, ten minutes of this movie. That wasn't even the last of the movie, though, but I think it was pretty substantial, too, because you could see that she just wasn't this happy, bubbly thing. She was going through a lot of loneliness and pain. She couldn't even see the fact that her friends had loved her as much that they needed her in her life. So she felt like she had to go on TV and had to lose weight mm-hmm. in order to be important in people's lives. Yep, yep. And uh, an interesting fact for you guys that I noticed that you did not list here, Nadine. So Burstein's uh, wig, right? When yeah. she first originally dyed her hair, the wig that they had her wear was made of this was red, which was to symbolize a dream of what she was trying to go for. And throughout the movie, the more she fell apart, the more her hair originally went back to gray of when she was before she didn't before she had her dream. Meaning she she fall, fell apart, and at the very very end, her hair was so close to gray that it almost it almost kind of looked like it wasn't a wig at all anymore. That was that was supposed to be the point of it to match that red hair with the red dress that she was really wanting to have. Yeah, little interesting fact for you. So the way Tyrone C. Love mixes styles both in the way he dresses and the way he talks is another instance where Darren wanted the film to be timeless, that it should be about addiction regardless of the time period in which it actually takes place. Ultimately, Requiem for a Dream is about the lengths people will go to escape the reality and that when you escape that reality, you create a hole in your present because you're not there. You're chasing off a pipe dream in the future and then you'll use anything to fill that vacuum. Aronofsky explains that the film is about addiction to anything, not just illegal drugs. It could also be addiction to coffee, TV, or even hope. And the last fact that I'll give you is Ellen Burstein spent time in Brooklyn learning about the lives of particular women and how narrow it is. She found that their life is about getting enough money to put food on the table to feed their children, and that's about it. Yeah. I do want to mention one last thing, uh, something I actually sent to you both right before the, right before we did the podcast. The fact that the musical score that was created, the uh, Requiem for a Dream musical score, is so well known, so much more so than the movie itself. For example, the trailer of Lord of the Rings, the second movie, it's actually in the trailer as the main music film and line. It's also been used in other films, and it's also a uh, it's a very common song. And if you have heard it, if you listen to it, you will yeah. absolutely have heard it. Yeah, it's funny when you said said that to me earlier. Like, I I thought it was just like a joke of like, oh, Lord of the Rings is epic, so it was like Requiem for a Dream. But no, that's the actual trailer music they used. Yeah, like it's legitimately the trailer music, and 
if you talk to the director about it and why he chose that musical score, because it was mentioned at one point, I don't know where, he said it was to pay homage to to that movie. A lot of a lot of current um, filmmakers and directors tie a lot of inspiration to this movie for various reasons. So anyways, um, so we're not delaying too long on that. I'm going to start with the movie synopsis. There's a lot to this movie, so it's going to be a little bit longer than normal. But I will see if I can blitz through it a little bit um, so we can at least understand what is going on. So first off, the movie starts with a 90s-style juice TV show, Tappy Toon, that abruptly gets shut off as Harry unplugs a TV. Sarah, Harry's mother, then locks herself in the room after asking Harry not to take the TV again. Harry is not deterred by his mother's pleading, instead becomes angry and manipulative with his mother when he finds the TV has been chained up to the radiator. Once Harry connives and convinces um, her mother to give the key to her, he goes to pawn the TV with his friend Tyrone to get more money with drugs, and telling her a promise he always says, I'll get you another one. After, the guys discuss how they can make a lot of money selling drugs and decide on plan to do so. The next day, Harry's mother Sarah goes to buy her TV back, and the pawn shop guy asks why he doesn't just cut Harry off. You know, she may do better without him, and she says she can't. He's our only son. Sarah then goes home and sits in front of the TV to watch Tappy Toon, which is about losing weight as she eats a box of chocolates. Interesting fact as well, the way that she was actually trying to grab the chocolates is also symbolized later on when she's grabbing pills off the table. Now, when she's watching the infomercial... She gets a call that she will be on TV and excitedly pulls a red dress that she wore when Harry graduated, but unfortunately finds it doesn't fit anymore. The scene then shifts to Harry and Marion discussing their parents on top of an apartment building. Harry convinces Marion that she should sell her clothes to support herself. The scene then shifts back to Sarah, who visits her friend to help her get the red dress on. Now, when they can't get it on, Sarah's friend gives her a diet book to help her lose some weight so she can fit in the dress. While Sarah struggles with her diet, which I believe was grapefruit and something else. Hard-boiled egg. Yeah, grapefruit and hard-boiled egg diet. Tyrone and Harry tell Marion about their plan to sell drugs, and Marion seems on board. Now, later that day, Harry shows Marion his ideas for a clothing store that would sell her clothing designs. The next day, Sarah is shown struggling with her diet, and she goes outside to hang out with her friends to keep her mind off food. While there, one of her friends tells her about a diet pill that her daughter went on, but Sarah declines as the mailman shows up with her application for the TV show. The scene then shifts back to Harry and Tyrone, as Tyrone leaves to get drugs to sell from his friend. While Harry is waiting for Tyrone to come back, he hallucinates seeing Marion at the end of a pier and runs to her, and she turns just as Tyrone comes back. The guys then take some of what they're trying to supposed to sell to see how much they need to cut. And that scene is also a really, really cool transitional scene from a TV set into a pier. Really, really neat scene. The scene shifts back to Sarah again as she continues to struggle with her diet, even hallucinating food, as she watches her favorite show, Tappy Toon. Frustrated, Sarah goes to bed to try and stop her cravings, but she still can't get food out of her mind. Fed up that her diet is not going as easily as she wants, Sarah gives up and calls her friend Rosie to get the name of Dr. Rosie's daughter went to see. Now... As Sarah's getting the number for the doctor, Harry and Marion are having an argument in their flat because she's going to dinner with her ex-therapist that she used to sleep with. Harry doesn't want her to see him, but she feels she has to because if her parents found out that she stopped going to therapy, they'd cut her off. Now, while at dinner, Marion eggs on her therapist as she asks him about his wife and pretends he has food on his face, though he will have to leave the bathroom. The next day, Sarah arrives at the doctor's office he was told about is an extremely short visit with the doctor who basically just prescribes her diet pills and then leaves. From there, the scene shifts to a really, really iconic montage of Harry and Tyrone selling drugs as Marion designs new clothes for a store that they buy with the money Harry gets from selling drugs. The scene then shifts back to Sarah going over four diet pills she has to take. Sarah is then shown being incapable of sitting still as the day goes on, even dances while she's eating a sandwich. Later that day, Tyrone is hanging out with a girl in his apartment, admiring his new mirrors. When he has a flashback to when he was a kid telling his mom, he told her he would make it. The girl in his bed then asks him what he's doing. He says, think about all the nasty things I'm going to do to you and jumps on the bed with her. The scene then shifts to Harry and Marion at the beach, talking about Harry getting a new TV for his mom for everything he put her through. Marion thinks it's a great idea and wants to get it immediately, but Harry wants to get high first. As Harry and Marion getting high, the scene shifts over to Sarah taking her pills for the day and the effects they're having on her. Marion does not stop moving all day long until the end of the day where she takes her fourth pill, a sleeping pill which finally stops her from constantly moving. That scene, by the way, 
I believe is one of the coolest scenes in the movie, which again, I will explain later. Now, weeks go by as we've seen Sarah get skinnier and the red dress gets closer and closer to the right size. Now, as she's sitting outside waiting for the mail with her friends, one morning Harry shows up to tell her he's buying her a TV. During the visit, Sarah still can't sit down long enough to hear Harry out until he makes her. Harry then tells tells her about Marion and that she's he's doing well as a distributor and then apologizes to her for the way he's acted in the past and got her a new TV. Harry then notices mom grinding her teeth and asks her if she's on diet pills. She tells him he is and Harry freaks out telling her she'll die from those pills. Sarah argues that she needs to be thinner and to fit in the red dress for the TV show as it gives her a reason to get up in the morning and she finally feels good after years of feeling lonely. Harry leaves shortly after this and breaks down in the cab. The scene then shifts to a fall night where Tyrone is talking to a supplier who wants to promote when they got shot up in the car by a rival gang. Tyrone runs from the shootout and gets arrested. Now after Tyrone is arrested, we go back to Sarah who is shown to be feeling the same effect her diet pills gave her in the summer as she got used to them. Sarah then calls her doctor to see if she gave her weaker pills and they assure her she's just getting used to them before they hang up. Sarah, not completely believing them, decides it's, you know, it's the pills. And then turns on the TV where she begins to hallucinate that she's on her favorite TV show and the fridge is shaking to get her attention. The evening, that evening, Tyrone is bailed out by Harry with most of their money and finds out that the main supplier bailed to Florida until the gang war is over. Tyrone says there's one supplier left, Big Tim, but he only sells for pussy. Now that night, as Harry is sleeping, Marion is having trouble staying asleep because she's fiending for another, she's, she's, wanting another fix and convinces harry to use the last of what they have even though he warns her that's all they have left while while getting marion water before they push off he notices his injection site in his arm is turning purple and bruised the scene then shifts to show a skinnier sarah at the doctor's office clearly out of the sorts the doctor talks to her for less than a minute but never looks at her as he hands her a script for more pills and then leaves after the doctor leaves we go back to marion and harry after finding out that tyrone couldn't score Marion blames Harry for them not having anything, and Harry, rightfully pissed off, leaves to find Tyrone. Tyrone then tells him that a shipment will be coming in, but it will be double the cost. Now, with their cash dwindling, Harry goes back to Marion and tries to convince her to see her ex-therapist to borrow money for him. And, well, that, that conversation was messed up. Basically prostitution. Yeah. After some convincing, Marion agrees to go to dinner with Arthur and sleeps with them to get the money that Harry needs. The scene then shifts to Tyrone and Harry going to a grocery store to get the drugs that came in an orange truck from Florida. Halfway through the sale, someone comes out and shoots up the place and takes the truck. The guys then then make a plan to go to Florida to meet up with Tyrone's friend who fled the city to get more products since there wasn't any more in the city. With that plan laid out, we go back to Sarah, who's clearly lost her shit from the diet pills. Sarah wakes up after a bender in her red dress with the phone off the hook. The fridge then starts to starts to jump at her and she freaks out. The scene then goes back to Harry as he arrives at his and Marion's apartment where she blames him for not being able to score while letting him explain what happened. Harry then gets the number for Big Tim and he gives it to her, telling her to go hook up with him as she needs a fix so bad, and then leaves again to find Tyrone. Also fucked. After Harry leaves, we switch back to Sarah trying to watch her favorite show as her fridge jumps at her again. While she watches the show, she hallucinates she's on the TV again, to the point that her TV self and TV host project themselves in her living room to ridicule her and chase her out of the apartment. Sarah, in a panic, then goes to find the TV studio, where they call an ambulance to come collect her because she's clearly out of her mind. Harry leaves for Florida. With Tyrone as his mother's being taken to a hospital, and Marion freaks out, she begs their friend Angel to give her a score, and when he can't, she calls Big Tim to get what she's looking for. On their way down to Florida... Tyrone sees Harry's arm for the first time and warns him not to shoot up in that arm. Harry does it anyway, despite the clearly growing infection in his arm. When Harry is on the road, Marion meets up with Big Tim and basically prostitutes herself for drugs. As she's leaving, he invites her to a party where she hints she can score more, and Marion declines, stating she isn't quite hooked yet. After Marion hooks up with Big Tim, the scene shifts back to Harry and Tyrone at the hospital where they're both arrested for drugs after the doctor sees Harry's infected arm. As Harry is getting arrested, Sarah is being tied down in her drug state and force-fed. Sarah keeps spitting at the food out as they force her to eat. Because Sarah refuses to eat, the doctor comes back and prescribes her more meds and instructs that she gets a feeding tube put in. And this is where it starts really unraveling the movie. The scene then shifts to Marion getting ready when Harry calls her and asks her how she is. 
Marion begs him to come back, and Harry breaks down and promises he will, even though he knows he can't. When they hang up the phone, Marion looks dead inside. The scene then shifts back to Sarah as the doctor convinces a clearly not-in-the-right-mind Sarah to sign off on electroshock therapy, as all the other treatments he tried were not working. From there, the scene switches back and forth between Harry getting his arm amputated after being sent back to the hospital from the prison, Marion being the center of attention at a sex party, basically prostituting herself in a group, um, Tyrone working in the prison and being abused and racist, a lot of shit in the prison, and poor Sarah getting electric shock therapy. After the jumble of scenes, we see Harry wake up from a dream of Marion on the pier and realizes that she was not going to come for him. Sarah's friend comes to the mental institute and break down from the sight of their friend being so broken. Marion is seen smiling on the couch with a fairly large amount of drugs she scored from Big Tim's sex party. Tyrone is seen in prison alone dreaming about his mother. The movie ends with Sarah hallucinating that she's on her favorite show, Tappy Toon, where she won the grand prize. And her son, Harry, with both arms still there, comes to see her on stage and hugs her. This movie, guys, and that's the end of the synopsis, this movie is messed up. It's dark. Now, I I, I have a lot to comment and actually get excited about when um when it when I want to mention this movie. But the very first thing I want to bring up. Um, that I'm sure both you guys, you know, noticed is the repetitive drug scenes, right? Every single time they use drugs, the scene of when they, when the drugs went, you, you guys know what that was meant to be, right? Like where it starts going into the bloodstream and it shows like it bubbling and all that stuff. It's inaccurate, but I knew what they were going for. His eyes would not have been yeah, I mean, pinned the way they of would. Course, of course, of course. It was supposed to be more of like a a trippy scene. And the reason is, is because it was supposed to demonstrate the length of how long the drugs actually worked. Because later on in the movie, the scenes were sped up really fucking fast. And then they would just be a short high and then back to the depression rather than an extremely new experience, you know? And yeah. I always thought that part of the movie was actually really, really well done even though a lot of people don't really like that particular thing. So I had to get that out. But Nadine, um, what did you think about this movie, man? I really liked it. Honestly, the person that I felt the most sorry for, because this is not a movie where you're not going to feel sorry for anyone in the movie. You are going to feel for these people when you watch it. But the person that I felt oh, yeah. most sorry for was Sarah. Because to be honest with you, I don't think this was a choice for her. Not that any of this was a choice for any of them, but... I feel like she felt like she needed to be smaller in order to be important to people and needed to be seen and loved, even though she already was loved because she was lonely because she missed her husband. Her son wasn't around anymore. And she felt like she couldn't get that kind of love yeah. again. And but she took then, it on herself. But not even just that. Mm -hmm. She went to the doctor's office. She was trying to do it the right way. I mean, she tried doing the diet at first. Of course, it failed. It was an extreme diet. You can't do something like that right away. You're setting yourself up for failure. You're not going to lose the weight. As soon as you get off that diet, you're going to gain it right back. That's not how you want to diet. But when she went to the doctor's office thinking that she was going to get diet pills, you know, he could have done something else. He sort of could have looked at her and said, you know what? What diet were you on? Let's see if we can't fix you up with a different diet. That diet would not the right be the right diet yeah. for you, you yeah. know? He Absolutely could have looked at her up. at her medical history and said, you know what, send her to a therapist first because he knew those type of drugs might have like that kind of effect on her. But he did none of that. He didn't talk to her. He didn't really look at her. The one that did look at her and talk to her more was the nurse. And the nurse didn't even talk to her all that much either. They just gave her the drugs and sent her on her way. And when she went back to the doctor for her, her visit, he didn't even hear her out. She clearly was out of her fucking mind. He could have stopped this at any fucking point. She may not have ever been at this point or ever lost her mind if it wasn't because of his negligence as a doctor. He did not do what he was supposed to do. There's different points in this movie that, and this is one of the reasons why you mentioned that a lot of the people that watch this movie around the time period, a lot of the people in the like medical institutions hated this movie. Because it showed all the negative, you know, ambiance and scenes that come from uh, people just wanting assistance. Like most people nowadays, you know how really easy it is to get drugs and shit from a hospital? 
you just go and say you have something and most of the time you can get it depending on what it is right and that's what it was really shown for sarah and although i 100 percent agree with you because her acting was the movie honestly the movie could be centered around her acting alone and remove all the other characters although it wouldn't be as in depth it would still be a good movie because her acting was impeccable for the character of uh, who she was playing which brings me to another thing um dan do you remember that uh remember that scene where she took like the medication or the diet pills for the first time and basically spent the entire day cleaning the house yeah do you know how they did that like the uh the shot where they kind of like yep pan across and she's like sped up yeah, uh, they, they probably just like moved the camera very slowly and filmed her doing that. Yes, and because of the budget they had, they actually set up fake walls like normally they do, right? But yeah. they just had a camera on a timed movement across, and she spent like thirty minutes to half to almost an hour cleaning to get that scene right. Yeah, the uh, the, the cinematography yeah. in this movie is just brilliant. Yes, yes. There's so many, I feel like this movie pays so much homage to older cinematography that was forgotten about. Before all the great transitions and graphics and you were wowed and you could just use the fade to black and then into another thing because you didn't care about it anymore. They had to do amazing cinematography because it was hard to transition scenes. Very hard. They didn't have the technology as much as they did before. The small details and the transitions. Or how about when they had the cameras that they had to wear, the close-up camera. And there's actually a term for it. The director of the movie actually, it's known as his type of camera shot because he used it so well in this movie where it would show show someone running. It would show someone in a stressful situation. It would show someone really up close getting larger and larger and showing what the person is feeling just because of how the camera was positioned because it got every shake it got every emotion eclipsed it's really really good camera and cinematography work it definitely is good camera and cinematography work but i would have to say the actors that they picked for this movie ended up acting the parts that they did were phenomenal in their own right because each one of them made you either hate the character or love the character like sarah we all feel for her we all love her Harry, I have mixed feelings about him because I think Jared Leto did a good job being an asshole, but also an asshole that you kind of were like, you felt for because he was in situations and I knew, like, you know, he never actually wanted to have his life like that, but he made choices that ended him in the position that he was at the end of the movie. That's the point of the movie though, Nadine. No, I know, but I'm saying is the actor's did it so well. If you didn't have the actors that you did there, I'm not saying that another actor couldn't have done it, but they did it so well that it made it more, you know, like you could connect with them. To that point, I don't feel like I like Harry's character. He's my least favorite, but I still feel for him. The yeah. acting cast, the main acting cast, and the main characters were amazing. Yes. That, the people that were played, their acting, the amount of depth they went into, you know, when we originally reviewed uh, some some other movies, we were always roasting on the acting, like first and foremost. Yeah, like we always talked about how the actors, like certain actors, just made certain characters completely worthless. In this particular case, every actor did the exact opposite. Every single yeah. character in this movie had such a such a personality, and the yeah. trauma made it so real. And that's the thing about some a movie like this: if you don't get good acting, then it loses all of that. No matter what cinematography you do, no matter what, you know, musical score you do, no matter how horrible the scenes are, it turns it into a comedy. It's such a hard line to get a true drama from a low-budget film like this and such high-quality actors that, to my opinion, is just amazing all around. They did a good job. I think for you guys, because you guys are more tech, you're more into that portion of it. Like, Dan really likes the way things works and are put together. John, you're the same exact way. You guys both like the cinematography, the way they put together the music. I like the story. I still listen to the music. I still listen to the music, by the way. Yeah. Even now, after 20 years. But for me, I like the story. And I like how the actors can make the emotions from the people that they're portraying hit me. And I would say that every single one of them did that, that 
they did that. There was points where I really hated Marion because she was blaming Harry for things that he had no control over and not even attempting to listen to him. But it made sense because she had at that point and not in the beginning of the movie, but by, by the time that that scene had come up, been so addicted to what she was and, and, and what, craved it so hard that it controlled her personality to the point that she wasn't who she actually is anymore. Yeah. And that, um, one thing I have to say about this movie, um, outside of the actors and stuff, is there is a very, very important thing to think about when it comes to this type of movie, right? So as we know, this is what type of movie is a downward spiral. It slowly gets worse. It's supposed to be the movie. Now, after spending a lot of time thinking about it, I, I came to an interesting conclusion about this, um, if I can spit it out correctly. Um, the movie, when you look at it, you can actually segment into different parts. Each scene leads perfectly to another one in different ways, right? But it all comes down to the title of the movie. The, the definition of a requiem is supposed to be a song or a musical composition for the dead. Or an act or token of remembrance. I'm literally Google definition right here. But the importance of this is that it's supposed to be a song of the dead. Which means that... This is the Requiem for a Dream, not excluding the musical aspect to it, because the music tied so heavily into the movie, and, and that musical thing came along when every important part of the movie started playing. But it's supposed to tie into that it's where dreams go to die. It's, it's a composition of how <laughs> dreams die, because every single one of these people in this movie had a dream, had an awe-inspiring dream. And they turn to something to get them away for, and maybe something that would help them go to the dreams. But you can see their loss of control in multiple different ways, such as Sarah's hair turning back to gray, thinking she had it in control when she dyed it like she wanted her red dress to have it slowly turn back to gray. Harry losing his arm, um, you know, just slowly spiraling out of control because their dreams had died. And at the very, very end of the movie, when all four of them are curled up in the fetal position, every single one of them in the exact same position, you realize they finally understood and not per se regretted, but realized that their dreams were over. Makes a lot of sense. To piggyback actually off that, one of the facts that I left out was that something that the director stated, he named the people after what they were after. Um, Sarah Goldfarb, she wanted fame, the golden lights, mm -hmm. the stage. She wanted yep. to feel love that she couldn't have anymore. Harry wanted money, so Goldfarb. Uh, Marion, again, she wanted, you know, she wanted love from her parents, but she wanted money too. Silver, Marion Silver. Tyrone C. Love, his story was, he's another character that it was a little confusing when I was watching his stuff until finally it clicked at one moment when he was like with that girl in his apartment and he was naked. He wanted love. Yeah. Yeah. He he was searching for love because his mother has never yeah. been shown in the movie. She only has pictures of her. He only has memories and flashbacks of her. She's probably dead and that was the time and period in time of his life where he had stay he was stable and he was had peace and he had love in his life and he even says it. He hints towards it in that scene with the girl in his bedroom where they're both naked and they have sex. Right before he does that, she goes, "Oh, you're scaring me." And he goes, "You know, I don't want to scare anyone. All I want in my life is peace and love." And he was looking for love. He was named because that's what he was searching for. And at the end of the movie, his biggest fear is what ended up coming up because he was seen in his last scene in the movie alone in prison without the people he loves. Yep. And there's a, there's a lot of dark, dark things about this movie and a lot of lessons to be learned. I, I still believe this is a more of a musical movie than what is intended um because to piggyback kind of what you're saying nadine everyone has their own story right but inside that story there are so many different musical notes that can be actually seen for example when they take drugs and it goes through that sequence you know the director himself actually said the reason why i wanted it to be sort of played how it is where you get all these fake sounds and exaggerated noises as they're doing drugs and it repeats 
later on in the movie is because it's supposed to be almost like a hip hop sequence where you get this musical feel to it. You understand what is happening, but the importance of it diminishes over time, the faster it is. The first time we saw that scene, it was one of the longest segments in the entire movie. It was like a two, three minute scene, but you don't notice it. You don't really remember the drug scenes as much as you notice the other scenes because they're not as important, but they play such a vital role in breaking the movie into different segments, almost as if it's like a film musical, because every single time it gets worse and worse, that drug segment segment shortens just a tad bit more until the very, very come close to the very end when it's only a couple seconds long. Yeah. And then you tie in the music, the actual music of the film, which bless his fucking heart. The pr- music producer for this film really, I'm not sure if he was on drugs because he came up with something beautiful. Um, but every single time you hit that, that, that moment where it's like, things can't get worse from here. The music plays as it does to prove a point that obsession will continue taking you down different routes and into different parts of that musical, you know, that musical uh, piece. And that, and like, when I, when I think about this movie, yes, I'm, I always remember the trauma of drugs and one of the, this movie is the biggest reason why I refuse to do hard drugs. Right. Um, But not only that, but it also brings what it reminds me of is the music and the musical aspect of this movie, because it was such a weird sensation watching a traumatic film and not remembering the key parts of the movie that make it so beautiful. Because a lot of people, when they watch this movie, get that emotional connection first, and they get traumatized. I mean, come on, the movie's freaking traumatizing. But there's a lot of key elements in the movie that honestly don't deserve, it it shouldn't be in a budget $4.5 million film. This, the quality and the quality of work in this film should be way more of a budget. You see, you see films nowadays that have a hundred times the budget, but can't even come up to a hundredth of the uh, story and quality that this movie progresses. Can you can you hear me, fangirling? Because I am. I love this fucking yeah. movie in every single possible way. Yeah, I, I can I can hear it a little bit, but I I think the budget actually adds to it just because it makes it more realistic. It's more grounded. I actually was about to say the same thing. I was about to say that it really makes you feel like it was like they were maybe not with some of the more fanciful camera takes, you know, but it was like sometimes you were watching a home movie, especially in the beginning, not so much at the end because the way that they'd shot some of the scenes, especially towards the end was someone who clearly was trained to do it. But there were times because the quality of it wasn't as good as it could have been for the time it made you feel like you were watching someone filming their life at times. This movie, it's not super crazy accurate with the way drug addiction does it, but like it's its close enough that you could actually see these people living lives like this on a regular basis. And I think that's the most traumatizing part of it is not that the drugs and all and what it does to people, but the fact that it feels so close to home. Yeah. And it feels like it could happen to you if you turn to this type of stuff very easily. And I think yeah, that's the scary part. It's humanizing the story that you see. It's like each each person has their own story. This kind of gives you that story that this could happen to anybody. Yeah, I agree. Why it was so hard to watch is because people don't humanize things like that. They want yeah. they tend to avoid stuff like this. So, you know, watching a movie like this, I guarantee the majority of the people that start that watch the first thirty minutes of the movie walked out of the film. Honestly, I would agree with that too, because I feel like most people don't they there was so most people like they they don't humanize that they think you're it when you become homeless when you have drug issues you're not yeah. a person you're a thing at that point and that's how people separate it yeah. you're a disease right. and yeah the biggest issue i think with that is and I, I actually come across that is when you know someone who's had addiction issues it's different like you love them you want the best for them but they're clearly not making the best decisions for themselves how are you going to help them? You know what I mean? They they don't want you to. You can't give them the help. And other people aren't treating them well enough to make them feel like maybe they deserve that help or that love or any of that. So to bring it back a little bit into uh into the movie aspect again, Nadine, um, 
I, 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 this segment honestly is one of those when we review this movie, we're not just reviewing the movie, we're reviewing a lot of personal things and things that have happened to us because it's so easy to connect to this movie, which is why I, you know, I went on to a beautiful music thing about it because, uh, you know, music's a huge part of my life. Nadine went on about all of her, uh, you know, her experiences and Dan, but, um, when, <laughs> and Dan. <laughs> But uh, bringing bringing things a little step back, so we can kind of stay a little focused more on the movie. Um, I do want to I do want to ask you guys what was and without like showing or giving too much of a reason why. What was the hardest part of this movie for you to watch? The hardest, most difficult part. Dan, you go first. The uh, the hardest part for me to watch. Honestly, I'm gonna say the, the the refrigerator scenes with like when she starts to hallucinate. Well, that, not like I'm talking. Although I, I get where you're coming from, that's a cringy scene. I mean, like hardest, like you had difficulty watching it because it hurt or something like that. Not like hardest because wow, that's shit. Like, don't get me wrong. Everyone hated the refrigerator scene. It's a meme. No, no, that that's not what I was saying at all. I, I think what I was saying was like. I, I guess like the other stories, there was kind of I didn't really kind of connect connect as much with those characters. Like at that point, when I realized like the the mother was going down the spiral too, and like she couldn't really come back, it, it, that was what hit me. I don't know if that w- is kind of answering the question the right way. Yeah, it does. But that's like, the that, uh, that's the that's the that's the part of the movie that stuck out for you the most and was uh, the yes. most close to home or hard, hardest to watch. Um, to go on to share mine, Marion is my actual my favorite character in the movie um not for you know her character itself but what she actually went through is the most difficult for me because you know imagine being in a situation where you're being reliant on someone and then and uh, you lose everything slowly and they tell you that you should figure it out yourself gives you a number to go prostitute yourself and you have no other options because he was the only person that you were actually with or knew you gave up everything in your life to be with a person. And then it finally culminates at the end where she had, she puts herself on display um, in a, uh, you know, in an environment that no woman should ever have to go through first of all, but in an environment that, cul- uh, uh, you know, culminates from all the experiences she had before that part, I actually had to look away from the movie. That was really difficult. The first time I watched it. the second time I watched it was even worse because I was older and then I realized even more implications of it. But like that part of the movie struck out to me as the most difficult by fucking far. Even losing your arm is something else. You know, losing your mind is something else, but losing your dignity is probably the most difficult thing to accept out of the entire, of all, everything that happens to all four. I'd rather even go to jail personally. What do you think Nadine? What's your, uh, what's your most difficult scene in the movie um i think my most difficult scene in the movie to watch there was i mean there's i have an option between two same both same both you always have two options options. (laughs) the one was the scene with the doctor when she went the second time around and she clearly had started to lose her mind because the drugs were were fucking with her brain at that point sarah it hurt to watch because she clearly could have been helped at that point she could have never gotten she could have have stopped yeah like i mentioned before and i just i wanted to reach in and strangle him because he didn't even look at her not even once and that it drove me nuts i couldn't do it what was the uh what was the other difficult part of the movie i think the other difficult one was watching her having lost her mind having none of the treatments work having them force feed her and not even caring that she was a person just having a conversation you know complete conversation oh yeah they were just talking over her literally not even forcing food in her mouth and she was yep. clearly terrified, you know? She had no idea what was going on at that point. She didn't yep. want what they were doing for her. They weren't even trying to comfort her in any way. They were just tying her down and shoving food in her face while they were talking about their lives. And that was hard to watch. Yeah. To bring this segment sort of to a close, I'm going to do one last one. Because, again, this segment is one of those that we could go on indefinitely about. And I'd rather not. Because then you have to you have really start tying it into personal things. Um, but I want to ask the exact same question, but not the hardest, but what was your favorite scene in the movie? Something that was iconic to you or you remember instantly when you think about this movie? 
Dan, you want to go first? So it it's not the first scene that comes to my mind, but it's a scene that just like watching it kind of prepared you for like the rest of the movie was like the scene where Jimmy and Tyrone were at the, at, like, the, the little diner next to the cop and like Harry and that? Tyrone? Jimmy. He calls Tyrone calls him Jim. All right, so, Jimmy and Tyrone. Yeah, Jimmy. So, <laughs> yeah, but you see the scene where he's kind of like imagining taking this cop's gun and they toss it. I was like, wait, there's no, re- there's no way that could happen. And then I realized like it's his imagination, and that kind of prepared me to kind of see like what else this movie had in store. Because that, that was kind of like opening up what what was going on there. Um, for me, again, my actual favorite scene was the final scene in the movie, fo- followed by a close second of when. Uh... He had his arm amputated, and he woke up in realization. But really, it's the final scene in the movie where everyone turns to a fetal position, the exact same position, showing that at the very, very end, when everyone's at their final, the worst possible location they can be, everyone is just the same person after all. Everyone is in the exact same situation, at absolute rock bottom. Yeah. You know, they're all curled up in the same fetal position, and it's the literal climax, and the final note of the entire you know movie is them curling up in the same position as they were treating as if they were all the same person to begin with in the or, or how they were in the beginning of the movie but knowing that truly they can never go back that when i think of that movie it's it's that it's yeah. that specific scene by far but the close second is definitely when he walks he wakes up in trauma realizing his arm is missing yeah i'll, I'll... Which I still I'll, have nightmares about. I'll follow up on my own and say like there's a lot more memorable scenes, but for some reason that's that's the moment I was like kind of intrigued by the movie. Okay, Nadine, your favorite scene? Um, I think it's kind of hard for me to figure out what my favorite scene is, but I would have to say again, it's honestly she did the best in this movie. Not to say that any of them are bad actors; they're all fantastic. Sarah, the the person who played Sarah did the absolute best, best of she the act work. Drew me in a hundred and ten percent, and in the scene where she and Harry are talking, he's coming to give tell her he bought her a new TV. It's a scene that uh, I think hit me the most because it was an addict telling an addict <laughs> that they should stop doing the thing that they're addicted to, and that. Yep, and getting angry that they're still they and said they couldn't no. even yep. connect. When she, yeah, story, yeah, they couldn't even connect when she was telling them the reason why she was doing what she was doing, and it was really sad and it was really heartfelt. And you were like, "Wow, now I under, really understand." She's very lonely. She's very sad. She doesn't really have anything, or she feels like she doesn't have anything. Yep. And then the one thing that she wants comes to tell her not to go for what she wants. Right. And he to say, "Let's go back to how it was." Before. And he kind of just. Yeah. leaves her i mean i know he he felt he said he had to leave but did he like maybe he could have spent more time there maybe he could have seen her again you know it's like he didn't connect with what he was saying what she was saying at all he just cared mostly for how he felt about it and how he felt about possibly losing his mom soon but then he never really acted on it rather than how rather than how her you know his mom actually and felt. was yeah yeah what do you guys think of the movie? Is it is it a cult classic or isn't it? Does it define the cult classic sphere? I will go okay. first, please. Okay. Okay. Um, yes. In every literal sense, yes, it does. This movie is hard to watch. The people that have watched this movie, most of them, if not all of them, truly did enjoy it. And it left long-lasting impressions on people. And on top of that, this movie is referenced in a lot of current culture with the music that came from this movie. So I'm going to say absolutely in every possible literal sense. In fact, more so than most of the movies we've watched before with only one or two that I'd say is, you know, more of a cult classic than this, but that I th- feel like this is a good example of a cult classic. Alrighty. Dan, did you want to go first? Or do you want me to go? Dan? Yes, you go. go. I'll, I'll go. So I come, coming into this one, like my preconceived notion that was like, I didn't really consider this a cult classic because I thought it was more of like a film nerds movie, which. <laughs> well, to be fair, you were a film nerd in high school when you watched this movie. So, yeah. But as I watched it, I realized that the music alone makes it a cult classic. It's so understated. It's like an understated movie that like, I feel like everybody's seen at least once and probably the joke is that you've only seen it once and. Could probably because you never wanted to see it again. Yeah, you've seen it once and you never want to see it again. Yep. 
but like it's it's such like a iconic movie that stylistically story-wise the act like the actors and actresses in the movie like it's it's a cult classic oh yeah i will i will 100 percent agree with you um dan this in every literal sense that the the music alone gives this movie the cult classic honestly that's a it's cult music too nadine okay so no i'm just kidding it's a yes <laughs> obviously this movie is definitely a cult classic um it's not even just the music, which is a biggest one of the bigger reasons why it is. But I think it it has a couple other aspects of a cult classic movie. It definitely goes into the range of taboo. It pushes people to the limit where they're kind of like shocked by it. And even if they don't watch the movie again, they're not going to forget it. They're going to mention it. They've seen it. Maybe they do watch it a million times because they love the movie. They're a film junkie or maybe it just hits them the right way. But it is a movie that pushes people's buttons and they don't forget. So I would say for sure, it's a cult classic. Yep. Um, yeah, it, the, it's, it's a traumatizing movie that will remain with you in pain for the rest of your life. Um, so let us rate the movie. Um, Nadine, you start. What do you think this movie should be rated? Um, I actually would want to give it an eight. Uh, I know it's not the highest score. I've actually never rated a movie a 10 yet. Um, but I would say it's an 8. Simply because I think the acting alone and the story and the way it was done was really great. The, there's a few things that I would have done differently. I would have wanted to see more of Tyrone's story. And I would have wanted them to go into Marion's story a little bit more too. They kind of hinted at those two. They left them to the side. The two main ones were definitely Harry and Sarah. But I, I don't know how much more they could have gone into him without making the movie a lot longer than it already was. Yeah. Um, and the director actually mentioned this too, um, to follow up on that, Nadine, I respect your score, but the director went into this on how in order to keep the movie at the same, uh, consistency as what he did, he actually did cut out a lot of their that makes scenes, sense. um, that he originally was, it was, he was intending to use because it was in the book. It was in the book, but he, he ended up cutting out, um, a few scenes that, were dragging the movie on it didn't keep the same uh flow dan what do you think one out of ten uh i'll i will give this movie a nine uh again I'm, I, the reason i just i'm not going to give it a 10 is just because i obviously there's things that were cut out i there's still there's still questions i have about like what else is going on what's going to happen next but otherwise it's like a all like nearly a perfect movie um, I'm going to say that I watched this originally when I was 13 years old and this movie was not suited for someone that age, but because of that, when I watched it again, I watched it in a lot of a different light and I enjoyed it a lot more. And honestly, for the music alone, the music alone, even if the music, even if the movie itself wasn't that good, I would still give it a 10. But the movie itself has so much to it, and there's so many different things that you can pull from the movie that when I rate a movie, being one being why on earth does this movie exist, five being you didn't really take anything away from this movie, ten being if you were inspired by this movie, I have to say that this this is max possible score by far. And I, I said this was probably going to be a 10 out of 10 for me last week, so I'm just solidifying my uh, my previous concession. Um, Nadine, would you recommend this to your friends? I totally would recommend this to my friends. It's something that I feel like everyone should probably watch at one point. Because even if you don't have someone you know who's had issues with addiction before, you maybe will feel a little bit more sympathy for people who have addiction. And on top of that, it's a good fucking movie. So why not? <laughs> Um, I'm going to share that I'm going to say uh, I'm really unsure. I'm going to give it a maybe. Um, this movie was so traumatizing for me um, and so difficult for me to uh, to digest the first time around that um, I know like from experience that there's some people that would really, really, really not want to see this. And there's some people that probably should see this. But it's going to be a maybe. It really depends. I would not recommend this to my everyday friend. I'd recommend this to someone who uh, would be interested in movies like these. Would you say you would recommend it for a cult movie person? 
I'm still going to say the same thing. All maybe. Right. Um, I would want I would want this to be later on the list because you would really have to be into cult movies by the time you watch this first. This should be a final in destination because this 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 is a fucking trauma. So that's the next movie. one. Good, Dan. <laughs> yes, I, I'm going to recommend this as well. I think it is something that everybody should see, and I I almost think that you should almost like rewatch it like at different stages of your life as well, just because I think. So you can re-traumatize yourself and re- rethink well, your life decisions? No, just because, like, hearing each of your, like, takes on the movie, I feel like if I watch this movie again, and, like, depending on life, life experiences and kind of, like, people I meet along the way, if I watch this again in, like, ten years, I'll have a completely different take on this movie. There's just so many I, layers. I have to comment on that, Dan. I have a lot of personal reasons why. I like this movie so much and also why I'm traumatized by this movie so much, which I will not be sharing. But yeah. um, yes, it is. It is definitely like if you never went through anything like this, you don't know anyone that ever did. This movie may not feel as bad for you. It may just be like, oh, this is a like, yeah. a, you know, a yeah, d- like, documentary. And I think what my, my point is, is like, I don't think it's the movie you should just see once and run away from and never watch again. I think every couple of years, watch it, see why you initially had zero yeah. reaction to it, and kind of see where you are at that point in your life. And... Well, since you said that, uh-huh. the 4K variant has been released about two months ago, ironically enough. So, if you are really, really interested in having this movie, you can actually buy the movie in 4K. It has been remastered. And the music has not been touched at all. It is the exact same way it was. Which, by the way, um, to share something before we uh, start closing it out and, you know, Nadine talks. I learned that song on piano. That was one of the very first songs I learned on piano. It's a very, very easy song to learn, but it was really, really weird to play something that traumatized me so much. And it's still, to this day, one of my favorite songs. Go for it, Nadine. Um, I would say I agree with the Dan with what his statement was with, you know, you want to watch this movie every few years. He's not wrong. Because the first time I watched this, I was a lot younger. And, you know, I wasn't as mature. I did have experiences with people who had addiction in my life. And now that I'm older, I view it in a different way. Because at that point, I viewed it with upset. And now I view it... Right. And now I view it as, you know, understanding. Okay. Um, Well... Nadine, I think we should end it here. You got it. So if that's the case, we're going to end it here because it is, we are at like an hour and 11 minutes. Although we're probably going to edit about 10 minutes out of this. Um, I have to, I have to say, I hope this was a very interesting experience um, for our viewers because most, if not all of the movies we've watched have been very lighthearted and very fun and, or just comedy, you know? You know, just very, just very interesting movies. This is the first extremely dark movie that we've watched. And honestly, I don't regret it. I I think it's also one of those movies where, like, even if you don't watch it, which is the reason why we put the synopsis in the front. Because, like, if you don't want to watch along with us, you've never seen the movie before, you could still listen to what we think of it and actually know what we're saying. I am interested in the fact that to see what people, like, do say. Because usually when we watch these movies, we're making fun of each other and laughing the whole time. And this one was one of those movies where it was a little bit somber. <laughs> no, I still, I still made fun of Dan. I mean, here's the thing though, you know, when Dan, we bring him onto the uh, podcast and he brings in a movie like surf Nazis. Like <laughs> Jesus Christ. I, I thought this was going to be the worst. <laughs> it's never going to end. Dan. <laughs> <laughs> we bring, we bring in a movie like surf Nazis must die. You know, I have to counter with Requiem for a Dream, just to prove the difference in quality and taste. I, I, I'm not even going <laughs> to... I'm not going to react anymore. It's, it's, it'll just, it'll just be a joke for me and Nadine, then. You could just listen and suffer. <laughs> but you do make a good point, Nadine. Um, instead of making fun of each other, it is nice to have a, a movie where we're just traumatized together, huddling together, you know, drinking hot chocolate and shivering. Like, that's that's... That's that's something I like. Well, 
The next movie you guys might feel the same with. Uh, I'm not really sure. I've loved this. It's one of my top 10 favorite movies in the entire world. So I'm going to close it out so I can tell you what we'll be reviewing next week. So if you guys have any movie recommendations or want to talk about movies with us, you can find us on Facebook through our group. Uh, She's not a slut yet. I may change that name to Snassy very soon, but we'll see. Or you can email us at she's not a slut yet at gmail.com. If you guys like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. It actually really helps us get out there and have more people find us. Next week, we'll be reviewing Donnie Darko, which is an awesome movie, and John better like it. And it was released in 2001. Oh, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a one. Then, man, that's gonna be it. I'm gonna be like, yeah, I normally would rate a movie you, you've high. You've never seen quality. John? No, oh. I haven't. Okay. Um, in fact, I've never seen Predator. Okay, either. Predator, you're gonna hate. So, I mean, we, we have some. You're gonna movies. hate Predator, John. You're gonna yeah, hate it. Well, I'm I'm actually thinking Dan Dan might not like my neighbor totally. I don't think well. he's gonna like it either. We'll I see. don't think um, he but, will. No, but I know oh, you I, will. I love that Dan. movie. I grew up with that movie. But <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Donnie too. Darko, I actually do think you're really gonna like John. It's it is kind of a darker movie and they do shoot it pretty well. And <laughs> is it a darko it movie? Is a darko movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's actually it's actually really good. It is it and it has both the Dylan Halls in it, so yay. <laughs> All right, guys, we're ending it here. Come on, let's close it out. I will see you next week. We will all see you next week. (laughs) See ya. Bye. Bye.